Welcome to our uh, December event for CSP, Community Scholar Program. Oh, we got another rabbi. We got another rabbi back there. Right there. A lot of rabbis here. It tells you the status of our speaker today. Uh, you're in the right room if you're looking for Are We Still Jews? Challenges and Prospects in Modern Jewish Thought. And um, hopefully you'll still leave Jews. That's part of the goal of the program. This is not a conversion program. Uh, with guest speaker Paul Mendes Flor. Uh, for those of you who never heard of CSP, that we have people who drove here from, the Fern from San Fernando Valley. I want to make sure you know that. Of course, they are related to the speaker, but they do get credit for driving here. So they have no idea who CSP is, and maybe some of you don't either. Most of you do. CSP stands for Community Scholar Program, and this is our 18th year of uh, bringing the best Jewish thinkers in the world to Orange County. So I know you've got great programs in the Valley, but we've got great programs here in Orange County as well. And uh, as I've mentioned every time, I thank you, the donors, because you may not know this, but these people fund the program. We do get it, and we're very happy to get a grant each year from the Jewish Federation Family Services and Jewish Community Foundation, but 90% of our money comes from the lay people in Orange County who are interested in learning more about their Jewish history, their Jewish traditions, their Jewish philosophy. So thank you all. all. If you haven't had a chance to make your donation, we have not closed the book on our year uh, of accepting donations. Please do, and uh, we appreciate it. Also, we have a Legacy Circle has 100 people in it now. Uh, we're looking for more members. Hope you will join us. The Legacy Circle ensures the future of CSP long after we all leave. Um, and I hope you will join the circle. Although, I, as I mentioned before, I'm told people who join Legacy Circles live longer. So think of it as an investment in your future as well as in our future. Um, upcoming programs I wanted to mention. So our key program every year is our one-month scholar. So this is our 18th annual one-month scholar, which means we fly a scholar in from around the world. They reside here in Orange County for one month. We give them a car. We give them uh, some food. And um, they do 25 to 30 programs in 30 days. That's what it is. Uh, and uh, it's a hard program to find the right person for and write topics. We've explored many topics over the years. This year is our first program on modern American Jewish history. Professor Mark Dollinger will be here. And uh, here is the flyer. So I hope, the brochure, I hope that you will come to many programs. Our opening program is January 3rd. We have two class series that are only for members this year, uh, and those are already almost sold out. So if you're a member, please make sure you sign up. If you're not a member, you have many other programs to go to unless you want to become a member and sign up for the classes. Um, I know we have Rabbi Steinberg here. He's hosting a program. I think it's, uh, is it Judaism and Whiteness, maybe? And Rabbi Spitz, we're hosting at CBI a program. Which one is it? American Jewish Power in Israel the Contemporary Era. Right. Another rabbi has, has walked in. That's Rabbi Kavod back there. Um, we have um, Jews and Politics, American Zionism, California Jews, very contemporary topics. If you want to understand about why we are, who we are as American Jews, where we come from, this is the month for you. So please attend as many programs as you can. Um, a few other quick programs to mention. We're very happy, thanks to Larry Seidman, to be co-sponsoring event with the Orange County Society of the Archaeological Institute of America. And um, many of you heard J Jody Magnus when we brought her in here a few years ago. So she's going to be the featured speaker. The topic is New Discoveries in the Ancient Synagogue at Chukok in Israel. 
And there's been some amazing discoveries up there. It's in the Galilee. And I hope you will join us January 20th at, uh, if you're a CSP member, arrive at 1.30 for a private briefing with Jody. The program starts at 2 p.m. There's a flyer outside and you'll get an email about it as well. Lessons from Ellie Wiesel's Classroom with Ariel Berger, February 5th. And then uh, our 13th annual adult retreat, Gil Chovav. Uh, I don't know if you remember him. We're flying him in from Israel to hang out with our patrons this year at the Montage. So if you're a patron of CSP, in the next few days you'll get your invitation to come hang out at Montage with Gil Chovav, Israeli celebrity um, TV personality, great-grandson of Eliezer Ben Yehuda. That's just some of the programs coming up. Of course, we do have a travel program that we've been doing. Another rabbi, that's Peter Levy back there. A lot of rabbis. I think we have a minion of rabbis here. Oh, and Rabbi Seidman. And, and Rabbi Seidman, where are they? <laughs> More rabbis, sorry. We definitely have a minion of rabbis. Um, many of you know we did a, a uh, trilogy of trips to, to New York. We've done two trips to Israel. Now we're going back to find out about our Jewish roots. We're going to Lithuania and Poland, July. The trip is now officially sold out, but we are starting a wait list, so hopefully you will. If you're interested in joining us, you could, you're welcome to join the wait list, July 7th through 18th. We, we, are, we have until the end of December our CSP cap challenge. If you haven't had a chance to wear your CSP hat somewhere exotic or somewhere fun, please take a picture. Um, where is Mike Rubin? Mike, Mike and Alita took theirs outside a sex shop in Amsterdam. I can't show you the picture, unfortunately, because... But just you can try to envision it if you really want to. Red Light District. Red Light District, right. Very creative. Thank you for that photo. I really appreciate that. I hope Ezra doesn't see it. Um, we are on iTunes. If you want to catch up on 17 and a half years of programs, just go to iTunes OCCSP and you'll find us. Please take a moment to quickly turn off your cell phones. They do not go off in the middle of the lecture. And usually I do the introductions. But um, today, I'm going to hand the microphone over to Rabbi Eli Spitz to say a few words about our speaker and why we are so fortunate to have with us today Paul Mendes Flor. So please join me in welcoming Rabbi Eli Spitz to make the official introduction. I want to thank Ari for enabling my mentor, Professor Paul Mendes Flor. When during Hanukkah, I wanted to prepare, I googled Isaiah Gaffney and the Maccabees, because I had had him as a teacher as well at Hebrew University, and the only file that came up was the CSP lecture by Isaiah Gaffney on the topic. So I want to thank Grendel for the work he does at Matters. <laughs> Professor Paul Mendes Flor was the first professor to ever say to me, just call me Paul, to just call me by my first name. It was 1972, his first year at Hebrew University and mine. He had been a graduate student at Brandeis University. And I was a young man, 18, for the first time away from home at the university in over my head. And it was Professor Mendes Flor, who was my professor of classes like Wissenschaft de Judentums, Chachmat Yisrael in Hebrew, a class in Hebrew, that introduced me to critical scholarship and the history of ideas. And more, 
he would sit me down after I would write an essay with everybody else in the seminar being older than me and tutor me in how to write in English. <laughs> in that regard, I said to him earlier today, he was like an early investor in me. And for that, I'm forever indebted. Professor Mendes Flor, who is also Ari's teacher at Hebrew University. Not, not a memorable student. <laughs> <laughs> um, is one of the foremost authorities on modern Jewish thought. His anthology on modern Jewish thought is the most commonly used college textbook on the topic far and wide. He is the Martin Buber family historian and working now on a multi-volume 22 volume as the editor-in-chief in German collection of the writings of Martin Buber. Martin Buber spoke of I thou seeing the other as a whole person. And for me, beyond all that I learned intellectually from a early teacher for me in thought, I learned from Paul about being a mensch and uh, treating me, a young man, as somebody with potential, and I have taken that as a teacher to all that I do. My privilege to share my mentor, Professor Paul Mendes Flor. I've had over the years many, many students, probably way over a thousand. I've taught at the Hebrew University for 35 years, and subsequently I've been teaching at the University of Chicago four months a year. In Israel, we have mandatory retirement, but in the United States, you can reach uh, 120 and still teach. Uh, oh, I'm told. I do speak very softly, and I'm instru instructed to, like a lollipop. <laughs> okay, I'll do that. But I do remember some of my students, particularly Ellie. He has the most delectable, winning smile. He smiles not only with his, his cheeks, but his eyes. And although it's more than 40 years ago that he studied with me, I remember Ellie with that wonderful smile which projects it a deep warmth. Um, so I'm, I'm proud to, to have Ellie amongst my students, but even more um, exalted to have him, to see him in his prime as a, as a rabbi. And he took me around the, your, your facility, the school, and, the, and, the, and this particular JT, what do you call it? J something other. I know. JCC. <laughs> it's an extraordinary project. And, uh, and the love and esteem and, that Ellie exuberates with showing me this, these facilities uh, only confirms that he is uh, one of my favorite, favorite students. <laughs> As we say in Hebrew, Yashakoch, um, which means he's been using his intellectual and spiritual strength in the right direction. Um, as you probably hear, I'm a Native American, uh, a New Yorker, if you wish. Born in Manhattan, but raised in the Athens of America called Brooklyn. That was supposed to be a little bit ironic, but nonetheless. <laughs> uh, I've been living in Israel for more than 50 years. Before I departed to, to uh, establish my family and my, my um, professional life in Jerusalem, uh, it was a period, if I recall correctly, of, of the Vietnamese War. And many of you probably recall Lyndon Johnson, who was a very contested figure. I'm going to tell you a joke, don't worry, I'm not being political. <laughs> but he was a contested figure. 
And it was claimed that at his, at his press conferences, there was a credibility gap. We weren't certain whether he was telling the truth. So they said when he did this, he was telling the truth. When he did this, he t was telling the truth. And when he removed his coat, this is really the only reason, because it's very hot here. <laughs> he removed his coat, he was, he was telling the truth. When he moved his lips, he knew he was telling a lie. <laughs> so I'll be moving my lips. I'm not certain whether there's any credibility to what I have to say. <laughs> um, the topic has been assigned to me by Ari, who also claims to have uh, studied with me in Jerusalem. And a gap year, I think you call it. Uh, from Princeton to wherever else he went to law school. And there are other suburbs. Uh, Survivors of my survivors of my teaching that I've met amongst you. Um, any event, uh, he assigned me a topic based on an essay that uh, has a very arresting title: uh, "Are We Still Jews?" The author of the article is uh, one of my dear friends or mentor of mine, a very close associate of Martin Buber and Franz Rosenzweig, one of the founding figures of the Hebrew University. Ernst Simon in Israel is called Akiva Simon. And he wrote this essay in 1948. 1948, just as the establishment of the State of Israel uh, was, just, uh, was founded. That's a poor English, but it's just as the State of Israel was established. Um, and the essay was written in Hebrew and was reprinted many, many times because of its question uh, Are we still Jews? That somehow that seems uh, obvious. Are we still Jews? Um, and it's the context is the state of Israel, uh, before the state was Israel, we had a controversy what to call the, the Jewish commonwealth. Some people said well, we should call it the Hebrew commonwealth or whatever. Um, and over a dozen names were suggested. But the name that was chosen is the state of Israel. And here I'd like to remind you, of, or at least remind myself, that Israel demarks the Jewish people everywhere. Here in Orange County, Israel exists. Here, Israel is assembled. Um, it refers to the Jewish people, which is the classical name of what we call Jewry. So it's the state of the Jewish people. It's a misnomer to refer to the state simply as Israel, although that's the habit. Um, Israel is you, you know, wherever you are, Jews reside, in Moscow or Yemen or, um, or in India, wherever. And that was the, 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 the name was the signal that this is the home of the Jewish people. At a particular moment, of course, critical moment in Jewish history, in the wake of the Holocaust and the survivors. Um, and then there was a legal question, who was a Jew? How do you define who was a Jew? And associated with that was the law of return. Anyone who is regarded as Jewish has a right to have immediate citizenship in the state of Israel. Get off the boat, off the plane. Hi, I'm Jewish. You're a citizen. <coughs> Immediately. Uh, but that still is problematic. Who is to be considered a Jew? In light of the Nuremberg Laws, as an individual who had one Jewish grandparent could claim Jewish descent. Uh, and it still holds true. Uh, many Soviet immigrants from, have one Jewish parent or married to a, uh, an, an, excuse me, an individual who has a Jewish parent or grandparent, they are regarded as members of the Jewish people. But that's an ethnic identity. And, uh, 
and it's, it glides into, it melds into every definition of the Jews as a nation, uh, a political nation, a nation that deserves to be regarded as a nation. You perhaps recall, not personally, I don't think any of us that old, but when Herzl established the, 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 the Zionist movement, the World Zionist movement, he assembled a congress in, um, in Basel, Switzerland. Um, it was a very dramatic moment. I just remember his person was a man of the work. He was a playwright, a man of the theater, a journalist of very great renown. And he orchestrated that first meeting uh, in a very special way, just to capture what the redefinition of the Jews as a nation. Um, he didn't have a great deal of funds at the time. And his associates said, well, there's an old bond somewhere in, in Basel. Let's use that. We'll, we'll, we'll repair it somehow. No, he insisted that the Congress should take place in the most palatial setting in Basel, the, the Great Opera. Moreover, he insisted that all the members, mailmen, must come in frocks, you know, long tails, and, uh, and the women accordingly, likewise, dressed in, in uh, ceremonial or Lisa Regal uh, dress. And he also invited the, the world press who came to, to mock the, the Jews, our nation, they have a Congress. And yet he insisted that we would appear on the stage of world history in the most dignified manner. And then he said to them, today I've cre recreated the Jews as a nation. Uh, and that is crucial uh, to our story. Um, now. Our, Ernst Simona was a pious, practicing Jew. Um, um, he came from a very assimilated background. In fact, he didn't know he was Jewish until, this, uh, he, uh, uh, until he joined the, or was conscripted into the first world, uh, the, excuse me, the, uh, the Kaiser's army. That's the emperor of, of Germany. Uh, he didn't know he was Jewish. His parents never told him. He, uh, he wasn't circumcised, nothing. But eventually, it was revealed to him, that he was a Jew, and he stood up strong and proud. I will affirm my Jewishness. At the age of 21, he was circumcised. But since he was a, well, in Hebrew we call it gedra, a real masculine sort of individual, tall, strong, um, he insisted not to be anesthetized at the circumcision. His wife told me that ever since then, whenever he heard of a brit, a circumcision, he would faint. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as we say, it's hard to be a Jew, and that's part of the quest story as well. Um, he felt that the turn to, uh, to defining the Jews purely as a nation uh, was problematic, particularly of those who claimed that we are free to be a nation like any other nation. Moshe Dayan, a great hero, military hero, um, said, I want to be a Jew like the Frenchmen are French. The French don't need to justify themselves. They're French, they speak French, they eat frog's legs, we'll eat, of course, initiatives uh, and the like. Well, Israel would be falafel. But in any event, to be a normal nation, unburdened by the need to explain ourselves, to justify ourselves to other people, to be judged by others. And that, according to Simon, was problematic. Of course, it meant a forfeiture of what defines the Jews uh, and here I'd like to elaborate with you. And you, obviously you're invited to raise questions and, and explore the issue together with me. 
uh, a writer who may, may even have heard of George Steiner once spoke about the blackmail of transcendence. Jews are blackmailed to regard their lives as beholden to something larger than their own political, economic existence. And here we may refer, just to explore the issue further, to a title of a book by a, a good friend. I don't know if the book you were referring to is one I did with Arthur Cohn, his thick book, like Problems Contemporary Jewish Religious Thought. Uh, Arthur is no longer with us, but he wrote a marvelous book, a very seminal, challenging book uh, in the early 50s with the title Natural and Supernatural Jew. By supernatural Jew, he meant uh, the Jews who regarded themselves as bound by a covenant with God, a transcendent being, uh, and all their life is to be conducted in light of that relationship. Uh, supernatural referring to God, above the natural world, uh, we're accountable to God in every aspect of our lives, and of which surrenders Judaism is distinctive. It's not just a religion where you go to synagogue or even go to play basketball together. I understand you have a great swimming pool. Enjoy it, but it's not really <laughs> consumes your, doesn't fully identify you as Jewish. Maybe if you've gone to swimming, swimming pool as a mikveh, may, but, <laughs> but, uh, but the way you get up in the morning, um, and even traditional Judaism, you go to the toilet. There's a special prayer. And if you're successful at activity, there's another prayer. <laughs> uh, you see a rainbow. You're supposed to stop and bless the rainbow. On the Sabbath, we have many, of course, um, ritual and liturgical obligations, one of which sounds peculiar. You're not supposed to pick up pick flowers on the Shabbat because it's all the soul that celebrates creation in all its aspects. That you know. Uh, that's the supernatural Jew. When we were liberated from the ghetto, and it was a long, long process. It wasn't overnight when Napoleon came. Come on, you can come out, Jews. No. Uh, of course, the ghetto was, throughout Europe was confined to a particular residential area, but it was also confined to uh, you know, ways you can uh, provide for your family, professions you can pr pursue, and the like. Um, and once we were liberated from the ghetto in this very this long process, the emancipation only was completed after the First World War. The, the most humane, humanistic country of the world, today, uh, Norway, only emancipated the Jews in 1918. Germany only completed the process of emancipation after the war, 1918. Likewise, what was called Tsarist Russia, which kept the Jews, of course, in a very uh, degraded fashion, uh, liberated the Jews under the, uh, under the Soviets, again in 1918. And that was the pattern. It was incremental, various uh, stages of emancipation. It was a long, long process. And here I'd just like to remind you, uh, when we're going to focus on the natural Jew for a moment, um, the reason it took a long time was because it was debated whether the Jews are qualified to be full citizens. And that gave birth to what was called the Jewish question. And the Jewish question was not simply articulated and exposed by, explored by the riffraff of society, but the great intellectuals, like name drop, Kant, Hegel, and Schmegel. No, there's no Schmegel. <laughs> That's a Jewish relative of Hegel. But, <laughs> however, uh, they all participated in 
debating whether the Jews are qualified to be or regard our fellow human beings. Along came the racial anti-Semitism, which said the Jews, no matter if they get nose jobs, they learn to speak German, they play the violin, earn doctorates, are incorrigibly Jewish by virtue of their chromosomes, um, their somatic structure. That's what we call racial anti-Semitism. And political expressions thereof uh, were organized politically. There were political parties had on their, uh, on their program anti-Semitic legislation. It was a rough time for the Jews. Um, and along came Hitler later on. He said, I got the final solution to what? The Jewish question. Today it's no longer politically correct, <laughs> although in the heart of some, there's still that question whether we are truly qualified to be regarded as fellow human beings, even though we've been educated, but we, uh, we now do push-ups. One of Herzl's, you might find this sort of ridiculous, but one of Herzl's uh, lieutenants was a man named Max Lordau, a very famous um, medical doctor. He developed a psychiatrist. He developed a notion of degeneration. At the first Zionist Congress, he gave a speech in German called Muskeljudentum. The Jews must learn to develop their muscles, uh, do push-ups, have sports clubs like you have here, learn to swim, uh, to be healthy human beings. And that's not a rabbinic Jew. That's he's, obviously is a critique. And many of you know the Sabra regards himself as tall, blonde, unlike um, the, uh, it used to be the case, the degenerate Jews of the exile. That's all attended, that, uh, indicates attention to the natural Jew on all levels. Uh, and much of the modern world was, of course, when we liberated from the ghettos, is to attend to our natural needs, politically, socially, the notion of self-realization in the ghetto. I only could be a Talmud scholar or a butcher, a shochet, but now I can be a mathematician, a lawyer, a physician. Self, uh, all of us celebrate self-realization. The school also has, the school that Eli, or Rabbi Spitz, he's still Eli in my heart, uh, <laughs> with a beautiful smile. Um, um, self-realization. But that means, of course, a challenge to ultimately the preeminence of our responsibilities as Jews beholden to the supernatural God. And this becomes obviously the problematic, the intellectual, spiritual, emotional, fancy word, existential <laughs> predicament of modern jury. How we can still be attentive to our needs as natural Jews, fellow human beings who have needs on a variety of levels, communal, personal, and still somehow see ourselves as accountable to a higher reality. To give you an example, and I'm certain all of us have can give witness to this predicament, I'd like to remind you of Kafka, Franz Kafka. Kafka wrote, and he was a good Jewish boy, but as bewildered as most Jews. Um, you remember his wrote his letter to his father, Dad, you've only been trying to help me get to have, be successful in the, in middle class modern culture, uh, but you've neglected to really pass on to me the substance of Judaism. I know it says something to me, but I have no idea. It's a very famous letter to his father, which he never sent, but it was a very damning letter. But it's perhaps uh, indicative of many of modern Jews that they told their Jews, but the substance, the spiritual substance. The poetry that determines the Jewish life 
um, the rhapsody of Jewish life was um, muffled or even deprived. So Kafka wrote in this uh, a very famous story that is read in many ways, but it can also be read from a Jewish perspective. I'm referring to this story, The Trial, which in German means, the, the German word is possess, that's the word for a trial, but it's the same word for a process. Um, and if we read the story, uh, at least from the perspective I'd like to share with you, he understands life as a trial. Um, and he's beholden to a higher reality, but in his case, he doesn't have any idea who that higher reality is. Uh, and more problematic, he doesn't know what that higher reality who's judging him, apparently, according to what criteria. But he feels himself still accountable, accountable to something higher than himself. That's what George uh, Steiner, I mentioned before, calls called the black the excuse me, the blackmail of, tran of transcendence. Blackmail because it's we feel ourselves um, not only beholden but uh, uh, obligated, even um, in an insidious fashion, uh, demanded to be to see ourselves as not only attentive to our natural reality, our political, economic reality. In Israel, of course, the state of Israel, I should be <laughs> consistent with my own uh, uh, position. Um, we have to defend ourselves militarily. In 1948, uh, the state of Israel, what was to be called the state of Israel, was born out of a conflict with uh, other residents of the country, uh, the Palestinian Arabs, who also felt it's their country. Um, and they were joined by other Arab nations to um, expunge the Jews, or at least to deny them of their, uh, their claim to the land. Uh, it was a brutal war, as all walls are by definition, by the very nature, brutal, barbaric. But in many cases, good Jewish men and women, women who were also part of the story, um, perpetuated atrocities. We don't like to mention it, but uh, 460 villages in Arab Palestinian towns were either abandoned or, um, or forced to evacuate. Something we now call, with great embarrassment, uh, ethnic cleansing in order to make room for the state of Israel. And that disturbed Simon and others very deeply. And he put it very simply, this is not Jewish. This is not the way we have to behave. Even though politically we are, have a need for our own country, we have a need to establish a refuge uh, in a cruel world, but doesn't mean that we have to be cruel ourselves in securing our own political dignity. It's a question he raised. But the question he raises in a larger sense, of course, is true of Jews everywhere. What defines us today as Jews? Simply an ethnic identity or even pride in the, our, our history? According uh, to Simon, and I would like to endorse his, his suggestion that that's not enough. Uh, it's clearly a difficult task to somehow redefine and re-give new energy to our transcendent obligations. Um, in all aspects of our lives, with one another, and with um, non-Jews. Remember the book of Leviticus, prior to the prophets said, you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. We want to be loved, each of us, but we should be able to love our neighbor. Um, and then he goes on a few passages later, 
to love the stranger, for you were strangers in Egypt's land. Uh, and that, has, that is a foundational um, moment, if you wish, of the Jews' understanding of our obligations to, uh, to a higher reality. Those passages, which uh, I just mentioned in, from the book of uh, Leviticus 19 through 32, uh, from 1918, well, you know, I don't have to tell you, I know the passages, but in the book of, nine, of Leviticus is read on our, in the synagogues as um, the holiness code. And we are to be loving to our neighbors, to our <coughs> strangers, because, and that's what God says, because I am holy and you are to be holy. Um, when, it was, when our lives were totally um, isolated from the modern world or the privileges of modernity, the opportunities of modernity, um, we regard ourselves as preeminently a holy people, not a nation in any ethnic sense or political sense, um, but we are a people. Um, and the question that challenges us today is how we, uh, given the fact that we are children of the modern world, uh, we've read Freud and Marx, and well, Marx maybe not, I did. <laughs> I was an old leftist, still a lefty, but all right, it's probably coming through anyway. <laughs> You'll forgive me if it offends anyone, but uh, um, I think I'm still a good Jew, even though I'm lefty. I'm right-handed, but I'm <laughs> Uh, how can we achieve holiness within the context of our lives? Um, let me just, uh, I have a few minutes more to speak. Uh, let me just make it a little bit more academic or nuanced, if you wish. Um, and this is what renders the problem so difficult for us. Um, we have a concept in philosophy uh, called the images of knowledge. What is regarded as knowledge in the Amazon jungle may not be regarded as knowledge, have the dignity to be called knowledge in Orange County. Uh, what is regarded as knowledge, what is regarded as knowledge in the Middle Ages may not be regarded as knowledge uh, here in Orange County or San Fernando Valley. That's where my sister comes from. I haven't seen my sister in more than 20 years and she came up. Well, we correspond, but I live in the Holy Land and she lives here. Uh, any event. Um, so what distinguishes knowledge? We have three categories, three dimensions that allow us to say this is knowledge as opposed to a bubba as opposed to a mere opinion, opposed to fictive news or whatever it's called today. Uh, news lies, what's the expression they use now? Fake news. Fake news, right. Um, and the first dimension is the source of knowledge. The source of knowledge. Traditional Judaism understands the ultimate source of knowledge to be God's word. We use a word which is not used in the, in the, in the Hebrew the vocabulary, but in the modern word, revelation. God reveals himself, herself, um, to us, the children of Israel, and, it, and, and indicates what is a fundamental source and meaning of life. Um, and the second uh, notion is the purpose of knowledge. In the modern period, we, Ellie took me to a, a wonderful laboratory teaching the young kids engineering and computer skills. Um, 
which embarrassed me because I still use a fountain pen. <laughs> I have difficulty with, I, just, I try, but I don't do it very well. Uh, but the purpose of knowledge in traditional Judaism is to be a holy people. The modern period is somehow to improve the quality of life, personally as well as collectively. It's very different. And the third is a little more subtle. We call it the principles of verification. How do you verify what has been told to you uh, as true and in accord with its purpose? Uh, and we have various methods. Traditional Judaism is you go back to the scripture and the rabbinic teachings and you uh, debate whether uh, these principles are applicable to us today, etc. The modern period is through observation, independent judgment, reason. And to the degree that we become modern, and we are introduced in the modern world in our schooling, etc., we are beholden, we are attentive to a different image of knowledge. And how do you reconcile a Jewish conception of knowledge, traditional Jewish conception of knowledge, and a modern conception of knowledge? At the heart, at least from my perspective, uh, is what I referred to before. Can we still be, regard ourselves as a holy people, a people who are responsible um, to some higher reality than ourselves, than our own natural needs? Can we still regard ourselves as a supernatural people? Um, Ernst Simon, who wrote the essay that, we, that was recommended to many by Avi, uh, Ari, excuse me, um, um, addressed the people of Israel, the, the people of the state of Israel, but also the people of Israel in the, in the general sense, the universal sense, that we cannot abandon our trans transcendent obligations. Um, how is the challenge that your rabbis will help you clarify? Um, but it's a challenge that each of us must address, um, that we have a responsibility um, to a higher reality we're accountable, even if we have the same perplexity as, as Kafka. Not certain who is the judge, according to what criteria he judges us, but nonetheless we see ourselves as Kafka did, accountable to some higher reality. Um, and I would say, even if we're struggling with that question, uh, that's what renders us Jews. Anyway, thank you. Yes, certainly. The title of your talk is Are We Still Jews? Yes. And, um, Can I just, just to be a bit more sure. uh, personal, what is your name? Alita. And he's a, as uh, uh, as a, uh, oh, yeah. I get older, you, you know, you'll, I'll be 78 in April, my signs are, anyway. Uh, Ellie, Ellie, right. No, Ellie, Ellie. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Anyway, you can call me Paul anyway. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Um, I have a, my question has to do with the way often Judaism is defined today doesn't, in my mind, distinguish us from other religions because often Judaism is presented to, especially, um, maybe even the newer, uh, younger people as um, a uh, method for doing social justice and social good and for um, healing the world and being in a better place. But I could probably do that, but 
by going across the street to the church as well, and who, which also I'm sure has programs to do good for society, or to another temple, uh, uh, another type of religion. So it, that doesn't really answer the question for me as to are we still Jews. And I think earlier you mentioned that maybe there, people are experiencing a, an emptiness or a vacuum with regard to spirituality. Um, and I'm wondering, because I also see at the same time one area of Judaism which is burgeoning while others are fighting and struggling for survival is uh, Chabad or Orthodox. And I'm wondering whether they are answering that question for people who are feeling that hole, that being a Jew, what makes me different from just the people down the street running the soup kitchen, are all of these practices and requirements and beliefs that differentiate and have for millennia Jews from other people. And we are not required to live at that level in most reform or conservative or reconstructionist temples. Right. So what, is, what does it mean? If it, is it more than just being good people? Indeed, it's mm. a central question. Um, I was asked that question in an interview that I had in Phoenix. Uh, and I appealed to an ancient statement that um, uh, the world and Judaism rests on three things. I'm certainly familiar with that. Um, on Torah, um, Avodah, which means religious practice, or liturgical. Oh, I'm sorry. sorry okay. Well, I have to... It <laughs> doesn't fit fully. Okay, I'm sorry. Anyway, the, uh, the rabbinic statement says that Judaism rests on three pillars. The first is Torah, and I'll come back to that. And the second is what we call avodah, prayer and ritual. And the third is gemilut chasidim, like acts of loving kindness. And each of them have uh, a religious dimension, not simply a social dimension. Um, Torah, of course, means God's word, but it also means the injunction to study Torah. Um, as you know, in the synagogue, part of the synagogue uh, traditionally, and even many reform and conservative synagogues, Study is part of the, the ritual life, the spiritual life. Um, uh, and that's why sometimes in Yiddish you refer to a synagogue as a shul, a school. Or in Hebrew as a bet midrash. Um, that, I think, is essential too. And even if we begin to teach study in a different ways and we bring different questions to the sources of our tradition, it's still an essential dimension. Um, and then also Simon, he was a professor, although he was trained as a philosopher, he established a school of education in Israel. Uh, and he was a great pedagogue and felt that pedagogy is not simply to provide information, but ways to have critical thinking and engaging, uh, an engagement, a critical uh, and thoughtful engagement in the sources of tradition. Um, liturgy, uh, liturgy and prayer service is, of course, problematic, depending on how you understand um, um, the gesture, the words, the, the acts of prayer and ritual. Um, and that I leave to the rabbis where I don't know what they represent, but they probably represent various denominations of Jewish religious practice. Um, but give me a little chassidim, address clearly your, your question. Uh, we translate it as acts of loving kindness. 
But that renders our acts of loving kindness a religious action, not simply a social action. It's a way of rendering the world holy and ourselves holy in doing such. Um, and that may be the difference of the consciousness of being nice and uh, there are a lot of nice people out there uh, who are Jews and non-Jews, Buddhists, uh, have a, a very strong social consciousness. But what renders Judaism specifically Jewish, if you wish to use the term, in the act of being, of acts of loving kindness, be it charity and other, is that it's part of an essential expression of our spiritual life as Jews. Um, and that's a question of sensibility, consciousness. Um, so it's not simply being socially active. Um, yes, please. The, my professor, uh, Jacob Rader Marcus, may he rest in peace, used to say that the Jewish people are an ever-dying people, that uh, we're always well with me and the Judaism's coming to an end, and uh, it's not a good situation from the time of the Bible. I'm just curious, what your read of history tells us about our future. Just <laughs> 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 in a sentence or two. <laughs> I'm not a prophet, I'll be quiet. <laughs> However, I'd like to refer to your last, your first comment. We have in the, in the Talmud a notion of Sheret Israel, the remnants of Israel. Uh, the remnants of Israel are always the Jews who are always a small number, relatively small. And there are those who, um, who are spiritually apathetic, religiously indifferent. Um, there's always moments of, of, uh, of assimilation. Um, and it's the remnants that kept Judaism alive. So it's not only a, a contemporary issue. Um, um, and obviously the questions that are raised is to the remnants of those who wish to be, be, regard themselves as the remnant of the Jewish people. We know that there's a lot of attrition, uh, a lot of indifference, um, and vistas that open up that seem to be more promising on the, than, than Jewish religious life. Um, we're familiar with that. Um, uh, and this, that makes the remnant very, a great responsibility to carry on. Um, well, how I see the future? Well, just to, to be somewhat repetitive, there will always be a remnant, uh, uh, and it's incumbent upon the remnant to accept the responsibility of being a remnant with full intellectual and spiritual and ethical integrity. Thank you. Yes. Uh, you, you place the uh, sense of obligation to a transcendental presence, I'd say God for simplicity, as a key element. And uh, a large portion of the American Jewish population, by common definition, and a large portion of the Israeli population, if you ask the question, do you feel bound by allegiance to God, would say no. Uh, so are we not Jews anymore? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, you want my certification? <laughs> uh, it's a question of definition, of course. Um, Simone felt, and many, including myself, would say it's not sufficient simply to find ourselves in pride in our heritage, uh, <coughs> pride in the, the sense of community that we may have. Um, and as I indicated, it's problematic. It's this challenge to somehow reimagine, given the fact that we are moderns, that we are now wedded to a new image of knowledge, 
revelation doesn't seem to be the source of knowledge that we would um, ground our lives or anchor our existence in. Um, we have new critical ways of understanding what is good, regarded as knowledge. Um, can we still affirm some sense of Ju Judaism as having its own, um, uh, can I use a fancy word? Cognitive means the way we think about reality. And another fancy word, um, axiology. Axiology is a Latin word for values. Do we have distinctive cognitive orientation? And we do we still have values which are distinctive to us? Uh, and values which are inflected, that have a religious moment to them. That when we are kind and gentle, charitable, um, we're doing it not just to be nice. A lot of nice people in the world. A lot of mention out there as well. You don't have to be Jewish to be a mensch. Um, but as part of our spiritual vocation. And that's another way of defining Judaism. It's not just simply an ethnic identity, but it's a spiritual vocation. What makes it problematic, uh, I guess, for yourself and myself as well, I, I have no clear ideology or theology. Um, can I tell you a little joke at this point? Um, uh, it's said that the Archbishop of Canterbury, the leading clerical figure in the Anglican Church, in a spirit of what we call ecumenical understanding, came to the chief rabbi of Britain, and they do have a chief rabbi. He said, Chief Rabbi, I would like to learn something about Judaism. Could you introduce me to uh, an, a primer, a basic book about systematic Jewish theology? And the rabbi responded, Jews do not have a theology, and if we had one, it would never be systematic. <laughs> uh, and that's what makes Judaism exciting, intellectually, spiritually. Yes, I'm sorry, please. I just wondered, uh, my understanding is that being a good person in Judaism is different than some other uh, theologies where a good person sacrifices a child or goes out to kill everybody who doesn't believe in their form of God worship. So I think that's a problem today. Our, our young people think everybody is good, but according to what criteria? Criteria, thank you. Yes, well that's what I'm uh, indicating. Another way of articulating the problem is there are religious communities um, that feel that the primary concern of religion is to purify your heart, spiritual, uh, uh, spiritual purity. We have that in Judaism, but the emphasis is on the life beyond uh, yourself, our responsibility for God's creation. And here, let me be a little theological. I'm with a company of rabbis. Uh, they'll forgive me for uh, trespassing. Um, but I already said that uh, whatever you call theology is not the, the sole location of rabbis. They're to instruct us. And of course, a rabbi means as a teacher. Um, what is central to Jewish um, religious sensibility is that the world is created by God and behold it is good and then as a comma indeed told Maud it's very good but we often experience the world as not being so good uh, certainly not very good at all times there are the tragic elements that is that we all are aware of um, injustice and uh, 
um, different distributions of physical health. Um, and that raises a fundamental question is, why all this suffering if God is, loves us and cares about us? And that we're called upon to affirm life as good. And then, I assume many of you do go to Shabbat. Shabbat is, is a celebration of creation. Uh, as we all know. And yet we are to affirm creation, life, despite all its tragedy, despite all its difficulties and tribulations that we experience personally and collectively. Um, and that is perhaps the axis, the, the center of Jewish spiritual life, is to affirm life. And, and we bless one another by wine. What do we say? L'chaim, to life. This, although there may be tears in your heart, a wound in your heart, uh, in your heart for those who suffer um, in incomprehensible ways, um, and I don't want to be too theological, but that what characterizes Judaism distinctively is that this insistence on uh, affirming the world as God's creation, the blessing of creation, with all the difficulties, and not to be satisfied with our own spiritual salvation. If you love me, whatever time. <laughs> Uh, as scholars, uh, we make a distinction between salvation, the term salvation, which is uh, the focus is on individual salvation, uh, and redemption. Redemption is for all of the world, um, sometimes associated with the coming of Messiah, but uh, we are regarded in the tradition to be partners with God in the process of, of creation. Uh, and again, I'm not a theological, the rabbis will forgive me. Uh, another theological trope is that I say in the Hebrew, creation is renewed every day. And it's renewed by virtue of our uh, participation in the life of, of God's, if you wish to use word God or some transcendent order, um, reality. Uh, that the world is ultimately to be governed by uh, not only pragmatic considerations, but somehow that we are responsible for the shape of the world as a blessing. Please, sir. Take two more questions. Uh, one of the, uh, uh, or I should say, two of the uh, most compelling uh, uh, injunctions in Torah, to me, mm -hmm. uh, was uh, were the injunctions to uh, be a light unto the nations. And I think uh, uh, Jews have uh, done that. But also, uh, the one that we haven't seen to fulfill yet is uh, to become a nation of priests. Could you, could you explain why? <laughs> well, both uh, those motifs or tropes uh, are cross-biblical. And uh, with regard to the first one, light into the nation, sometimes it's a bit dim, that light. <laughs> uh, it should be a bit, my own fit perspective, it should be a little bit brighter uh, than it currently is. Um, a king of priests is that um, we're all responsible. Um, each of us Jews are responsible for uh, the purity of our, uh, of our task before God. May I just give a biographical uh, expression of it, uh, elaboration of that? I had the joy, the, the pri privilege, uh, of being one of six representative Jews. I represented the bald-headed Jews and perspective Jews. 
but I was actually uh, voted as an Israeli uh, to spend two weeks with the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala, in the seat of his exile. And there were six representatives of various tendencies within the Jewish people, including the Hasid, uh, uh, Reconstructionist rabbi, Reform, and, and, and modern Orthodox. Um, the Dalai Lama was interested in reaching out to the Jews to learn how to survive as a people in exile. Um, and one must take into account is they have a priestly caste which is separate totally in terms of religious practice, religious knowledge from the average Buddhist. The average Buddhist performs his deeds through uh, what they call the holy wheel. It's a uh, ritual without much liturgical expression. Um, whereas the, the priests have a vast literature that they study and they pray on behalf of the community. The fundamental distinction between the priests, what they call priests, the monks, and um, the average Buddhist. And what we told the, uh, the Dalai Lama, of course in a very gentle way, um, is what secured the, the dignity of the Jews in exile after the temple was destroyed, was we democratized um, the priesthood. Every Jew is to see himself already in the Bible, it says, to be a priest responsible for the Torah, responsible for called good works. Um, uh, and that's what I think was meant by the notion of Malachi Kohen, a king of priests. Um, of course, we can elaborate on that, but um, the uh, Dalai Lama understood very deeply the significance of that, but he has no way of transforming um, the, the structure of Buddhist life. And that's a famous source of great tragedy. Last question. So, we, you know, when you study why Jews have survived, as we're getting to the question of are we still Jews, but the question begins with why have we survived despite all this, and Dalai Lama was concerned with that too, and I think we had a lecturer before who was also with you uh, on that. We've had, we've had all of, it's the Jew in the Lotus is the book, and we've had everybody from the book, including the writer, except for Jonathan Omer Mann, has been in Orange County 18 years. So go read the book and you'll recognize all the people. So, so the point is, is that there's been, especially on the more Haredi community, there's the argument that what helped the Jews survive is a, is a blind uh, abeyance of the Torah and the laws as a Haredi Orthodox dictates it to be. And yet, uh, you know, this is something that uh, I struggle with every day when I think about it, because uh, on the one hand, I don't feel comfortable with that kind of uh, uh, con uh, uh, conviction. And at the same time, you're saying, well, the real issue is being transcendent in our thinking as a Jew, and that's what keeps us together. But we're also highly uh, segregated because of that. And so the question becomes, is that enough when we, when we are no longer strength in numbers, say, the way a Haredi would see it? I'd like to th hear what you think of this. Right. You may have noticed a, a very subtle shift in the way I framed the question. I framed the question as how we are to survive as Jews. Um, 
And that's obviously a challenge to each of us, how we are to survive as Jews, how we are to encourage our, our fellow Jews to, to, to uh, affirm their Jewishness. Um, and one strategy has been communal cent uh, cent uh, centers. It's nice that you can swim together and come together, but is that sufficient? Uh, it's a very lovely uh, foundation or institution, but is it really um, what it's all about? Uh, and that's all I'm just posing the question. Obviously, I'm suggesting some sensibilities, but I'm not giving you any content. Um, but it's a question that we all have to ask. You know, there's a, what, you ask questions, and questions are central to Judaism. Um, there's a beautiful poem by a Hebrew poet, survived the Holocaust, Abakovna. And Abakovna was a member of the kibbutz, but he had a, a terminal cancer, and he was sent to uh, a hospital in New York City called Sloan Catering, which is considered the central uh, hospital for, for um, cancer patients. Uh, when he was clear that there was no, 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 no uh, therapy that would release him from death, he wrote one more poem. And the poem is he turns, even though he was a, he was a Marxist, we used to have those in Jewish socialist kibbutz, uh, he turns to God and he says, before I die, one more question. And Judaism is a culture of asking questions. And you should continue to ask those questions. That's what Mendes is Jewish. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all for coming out. You'll have to, if you haven't had a chance to Google Paul Mendes Florit, you should do it to understand uh, the real privilege you've had today to have uh, this professor in our community. And uh, the only thing I can say is I did I took a semester class with you and I understood what you were saying and then I took a class with Emil Fackenheim, no clue what he was saying. So thank you for uh, being clear and articulate and sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you all for coming out. See you uh, in January.